Let us now open God's holy word. And our reading is from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. We'll read from chapter 1, the verses 1 to 14. And our text is from the letter to the Galatians, the verses 1 through 5. So we begin with the Word of God as we find it in the letter to the Ephesians. And we read there, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. In him we have a redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now we turn then to the letter before that, the letter of Paul to the Galatians, chapter 1. And... Our text is the verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. After the sermon, let us sing together hymn seven, all four stanzas. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you open Scripture to the letter to the Galatians, you quickly notice that, unlike some of the other letters, Paul did not just write this to one particular congregation, but to a number of churches. Now, if you look at a map in the back of your Bible, where they tend to have these maps that also kind of portray for you the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, you will see that Galatia 
is an area approximately in the middle of the country we today call Turkey. It's interesting how we can read, for example, in the book of Acts, chapter 13 and 14, how Paul visited this region on his first missionary trip, visited cities such as Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And he did also follow-up visits on his second and third missionary trips. But this was a whole region, not just one church, to use today's terms, where we use the term classes to refer to a number of churches in a certain area, a certain region. You could say that Paul was writing to the churches in classes Galatia. So it makes us realize that when he was addressing there was not just a local issue, but an issue that had spread quite far among a group of congregations. Now, while it's not possible to determine exactly when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, it's rather obvious that there was a big problem in these congregations. Because as you read through all the letters, the whole letter, then you realize that men had come to these churches after the Apostle Paul had moved on to other mission fields who were undermining his message that he had preached that we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And they did this in part by undermining Paul's claim to be an apostle. So in short, they undermined the message by undermining the messenger. Now, as you read through this whole letter, then you quickly realize that, that Paul is not in a happy mood, you could say, but in a worried mood. And so he pulls no punches. You end up with a very feisty letter. We hear that in phrases. If you look a bit further, for example, in 1 verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And those well-known words in chapter 3 verse 1, where he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You know, those are pretty strong words. It shows you that Paul was concerned for the salvation of the sheep. And so he comes forward with a feisty letter that has a fervent defense of his message, as well as his calling as a messenger of that gospel. And you see this already in the greeting. You know, when it comes to a typical greeting in the letters that Paul would write to the various churches, reading would tell you who is writing the letter and whom he is addressing. But, of course, we have those elements. But normally, you would find those words of introduction also followed by commendation of his readers. He would write about the good things for which he is thankful. Even if you think of the letter to the Corinthians, for example, where he's going to address many issues, yet the first chapter is overflowing with praise. You haven't got a sense of what's really coming as you read that first chapter because there are so many positive things about the life of the Corinthians. So that's kind of typical. Who was writing to whom? Then kind of praise and commendation and indication of prayer being offered for them. But, but the situation in Galatia was such that there was no time for pleasantries. And already in the greeting, he lays out the issues he will deal with and puts the gospel of grace in a nutshell. And we also notice as he speaks of God's grace, he cannot help but break out in praise. Or to put it in fancy terms, you could say theology leads to doxology. And that's important for us to realize as well. And therefore, 
so that we will offer our praise to God for His grace. I proclaim to you this morning that Paul's greeting to the Galatians brings out how the gospel of grace leads to praise. And we are led to praise as we see God's grace, first of all, the foundation of our salvation, secondly, the purpose of our salvation, and thirdly, the origin of our salvation. So Paul's greeting to the Galatians brings out how the gospel of grace leads to praise. Then we begin with the foundation of our salvation. Now the foundation, of course, we know is Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul would even express it, for example, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, in so many words, that Jesus Christ is the foundation upon which the apostles are building. We sing about it in hymn 52. The church is one foundation, is Jesus Christ her Lord. Now, already in this letter, he brings it out in verse 1. It's interesting that the main point you could say in the opening verse is to already impress upon the readers his unique calling as an apostle, but he does that by indicating it came directly from the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father, and then right away he draws our attention to the resurrection of our Savior. Now, to see how this points to Jesus as the foundation of our salvation, we need to keep in mind the thinking that had been promoted among the Galatian churches after Paul had moved on. It was the thinking that the work of our Lord Jesus Christ was not really sufficient to pay for all our sins. So people said that it's important, of course, to believe in Jesus, but you have to supplement that by keeping the many laws as given by Moses. Often it is kind of summed up by referring to circumcision for Gentile men who became Christians, but it would involve all the other laws, the ceremonial laws. But already at the beginning, Paul draws our attention to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because as we also know, for example, from his extensive discussion about resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, there we have a key component of the gospel of salvation. There we have the key evidence that our sins had been paid for. If there had been no resurrection, there would have been no satisfaction, no payment for our sins. It's also interesting how Paul points to the resurrection and our justification, you could say, in Romans 4 verse 25, when he says that Jesus Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So, you want to draw attention to the significance of Jesus Christ, look to His resurrection. Critical moment. Yes, we think of the cross, of course, but the cross is nothing without the resurrection. This, however, is only the beginning of showing Christ as the foundation of our salvation. And he continues to show that by elaborating on his, the typical greeting, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. A familiar greeting. We hear it at the beginning of every worship service again, that grace and peace. It's a, letter you, it's a greeting you find in other letters of the Apostle Paul as well. But notice, grace is always first, because grace points to the forgiveness of our sins, and, and peace is second, because peace refers to the effect of living under grace. And then we should also think of peace as not just the absence of war, the way the world speaks about peace, but it speaks about all-around well-being, and not just in the sense of the things are well between us and other people, but the things are well with us and the Lord. 
interesting, the Jewish people, even to this day, they might greet each other with a word like shalom, peace, well-being between you and God and other people as well. But what stands out is how Paul elaborates on this greeting by pointing to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Because this grace and peace cannot be there without the Lord Jesus Christ, we read in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins. Now, as we hear all these things, you might say, well, you haven't told us too much new yet. You know, we know all these things. That's the basic gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation of our salvation. Here we think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some passages of Scripture speak about Him being the propitiation for our sins. The word that indicates that He has made sufficient payment to take away the wrath of God so we are living in fellowship with Him. Basic gospel. Foundation in Jesus Christ's sacrifice followed by His resurrection. But what should catch our attention, though, is already how succinctly Paul wraps up the core teaching of this gospel into his greeting, because this core gospel was being undermined, was being attacked. Now, he's going to elaborate on it further in this letter. You know, just look ahead to chapter 2, verse 20, for example, where he writes about the Lord Jesus Christ. There, chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for me. So, very clearly, again, Paul already there. Again, coming back to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life for his people. Chapter 3, verse 13. We also see it, for example. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So, really focusing our attention right away at the beginning. Look to Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected. That's where we have grace. That's where we also find our peace. And indeed, though it might be basic, you could say, we cannot stress enough the importance of Christ giving himself for our sins. Or, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, the message of Christ crucified. There we find everything we need for our salvation. There is nothing that needs to be added. Keep in mind, people had come saying it wasn't enough. Paul says it was enough. There we have everything we need. And that message of Christ who gave himself for our sins, who now is raised from the dead, that needs to be embraced in faith continually. It's not to be cluttered up in any way by talk of human works as adding to our salvation. Grace and peace find their foundation in Christ alone. Now, we need to be reminded of that very often, brothers and sisters, for our own sake, because there's always the danger that we, in a subtle way, begin to add something to the salvation equation. For example, we might feel an extra sense of peace because, yes, we know about the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we're very thankful for that. But but also we look at our own life and in our own opinion, we think, oh, I'm living a pretty good life, a life that I'm sure is, is quite pleasing to God. Of course, not perfect, but then, of course, the imperfections are kind of covered up with Jesus Christ. But there is still a sense of peace because of how we go about our lives. 
So in essence, we find peace in our own works. Or we might even say, yeah, but I'm really confident about my salvation because, well, I surrendered my life to Jesus, didn't I? So I made the good choice, as if our faith, our decision is the foundation for grace and peace, that kind of God owes it to us now because we chose for Him. And so to avoid deceiving ourselves, we need to hear time and again that our grace and peace are found only and fully in Christ who gave himself for us. There is nothing that can be added. It's all there. I need to be reminded of this as well, because the church is also often under pressure to, as the saying goes, become more relevant. But then you kind of ask yourself, now what is meant by that? What is the church supposed to do to become more relevant? Well, often it comes at the expense of the gospel of grace, you know, because then, does that mean that the church perhaps should not preach so much about grace, but start some more social services to serve the community? Should there be more programs to make the church more attractive to newcomers who have different burdens in life, maybe a ministry for singles, a ministry for the divorced, a ministry for this, ministry for that? Should the ministers maybe study politics a little bit more so that they can give more political opinion from the pulpit in addressing the social issues and political issues of the day? That would seem to be more relevant, right? Here we come to church and we hear about sin in our relationship with God and Jesus Christ. Come on, get in touch with what's going on in the world. But if the church begins to do that, it really loses its focus. Because the unique message of the church is that of grace and peace peace through faith in Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Now, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that message will be rejected by the Jews, which represent the self-righteous who think they can save themselves, who don't see sin as that big a problem. They can just do enough good and God will accept them. It also will lead to folly, can be considered folly by the Greeks, that is, the self-wise who think, what kind of silly talk is that to talk about Jesus Christ crucified? We don't need that. Is there even a God? That kind of thing comes to the fore. But if we do not preach Christ who gave himself for our sins, well, brothers and sisters, then the church has lost its reason for existence. And the church might as well say after this worship service, even right now, let's just all go home Let's just lock the doors, turn off the lights. We don't need a church anymore. The unique message of the church is the gospel of grace and peace in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And always keep in mind, that is the most relevant message the world needs to hear. It doesn't want to admit that problem. All kinds of other problems written about in the newspapers, but not about sin and standing as guilty before the face of God and needing Jesus Christ as the forgiveness of our sins, as the true way to peace. Always keep in mind, the message of the church is not determined by the world, but by the Word. Already here we can see how grace leads to praise. After all, as salvation is all out of grace for Christ's sake, what can saved sinners do but praise God for His grace and for the peace that passes all understanding, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Now, that grace leads to praise comes out further as we consider the purpose of our salvation. That's our second point. The purpose of salvation is expressed in the way Paul writes that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. It's very compact, but those words impress upon us. You can say what we are saved from and what we are saved for. First, what we are saved from. We do know, of course, that Paul does not use the word save, but deliver, the sense of rescuing. We can think of it in terms of the Exodus where the people were delivered, they were rescued from their slavery at the hand of the Egyptians. But that great rescue mission, that great deliverance from Egypt, there God was foreshadowing how He would rescue us and deliver us through the death of Jesus Christ from death and destruction, from perishing forever, from the grip of Satan. Now, as we think further about this, we will realize that being delivered or rescued from this present evil age does not mean that God right away takes us out of this world. We still continue in this world. But we do know that due to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are no longer, no longer a part of this world in the sense that we no longer share its values and we no longer will share in its ultimate end, which is destruction. Paul also writes about this, for example, in Romans 6, interacting with the idea that God's children can sin all the more, that grace may abound, basically keep on going in the ways of the world. And he says in a very strong way, that is not possible. He even connects it with baptism, how it symbolizes that we have died with Christ to the ways of sin, to the ways of the world, and now we are to be alive to God. Also, he even mentions that same passage, Romans 6, that sin no longer has dominion over his readers. To be sure, Christians will still have to struggle against sin. It would be nice if they didn't have to do that anymore. That once you're a Christian, it all kind of becomes easy. It doesn't become easy. It becomes more difficult. But the reality is, Christ has freed us from the power of the devil. Sin is no longer king in our lives, but the Lord Jesus Christ is. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us. You can also think of how he expresses it in Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14, where he writes that God has delivered us from the dominion, for the domain of darkness. Satan rules there and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so salvation, therefore, is pictured as God's great rescue mission. He rescues His people from a world that is perishing, headed for destruction. But also we said we are saved for something. Again, you think of Israel being led out of Egypt. The Lord God told His people Israel that they were His special people, that they were a nation of priests. And a nation of priests is to live a life that is fully devoted and dedicated to Him. And for that reason also He gave them the promised land, and He gave them the laws to teach them how now to live as His children in that promised land. Now with these few words, Paul is anticipating what he will discuss in the last two chapters of this letter. 
For while he will stress that we are justified by faith apart from human works, he will also show, you think of chapter 5, for example, 6, how those, justi- those who are justified by faith are to walk in the way of the Spirit. And so you could say that the believers who have been rescued from the ways of the evil age have been rescued for the purpose of living in the way of the age to come. So already, we know that we are, you could say, kingdom citizens. Already now on this earth, which is still, you could say, the domain of darkness where Satan is doing so much destructive work, we already now are to begin to live as those who have their citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And in this way, the believers will be a light in this dark, evil age. Think also of the way that Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 10, that we have been saved out of grace through faith, for the purpose of doing the good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And here also again, as we see what we are delivered from and for, we see reason to praise God for His gracious ways in Jesus Christ. Because we see Him redeeming His creation, not giving up on it, just throwing it all, you could say, in the garbage bin. We see a privilege to be His children, that we may live under His grace, we already now may enjoy being at peace with Him, already now we may make a beginning in serving Him as His children day by day. That's a privilege, reason to praise God for that gift. That brings us to our last point, the origin of our salvation. Now, we are reminded of the origin of our salvation when Paul writes that Jesus delivered us according to the will of our God and Father. Now, if there were still any lingering doubts that some of our human actions are going to make a contribution to our salvation, well, these words should take that away. Because in the light of all of Scripture, talk of the will of God takes us completely outside the sphere of human merit, any human activity in terms of obtaining or contributing towards salvation. But it brings, impresses upon us that ultimately it all is to be found in the sovereign grace of God, which really is His plan from before the foundation of the world. Now, as we read about God's salvation, the gift of salvation according to the will of God, then our words are drawn especially to what we also read in Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 14, although also there we could have seen, could have pointed that out, that speaks about Christ as the foundation, very clearly. It's all in Christ. But that passage really brings to the fore also the will of God. Think of how we read there, how Paul explains that God chose His people in Christ, so there's the foundation again, before the foundation of the world. No human activity were involved at all yet. God made that decision. He predestined us. For what? For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. And at verse 11, we also read how He works all things according to the counsel of His will. As we think about God's will, His eternal purpose and plan, you know, you can also think of those words of Paul in Romans 9 through 11, where he discusses the whole question of now, what about the Jews, the Old Testament covenant people who had a special relationship with God? 
how come that so few of them are following Jesus? Well, he also ends up in a big discussion about God's sovereign will, God's plan. Now keep in mind that in this letter, Paul is going to interact with those who taught that obedience to the laws as given through Moses, especially many of the ceremonial laws, were necessary for salvation. Human effort, in other words. But how powerful a rejection of any human effort as contributing to our salvation by pulling the minds of his readers away from the here and now to way before the beginning of history, before the beginning of time, to God's eternal will. And whatever lingering thoughts may ever come into our minds about us having to contribute something towards our salvation, well, when we think, ultimately, that it is found in God's sovereign will, then it should completely fall away. What really can we contribute? It is all in God's plan. Now, as we hear this emphasis on the origin lying in God's will, we can also think of our third Reformed confession, the Canons of Dort. You may have heard somewhere that this year, 1618, marks the 400th anniversary of the Synod that adopted the canons, the decisions. We know that that synod took place in the Netherlands, and lest we think that was just a little Dutch issue, it's good to realize that this actually was an international issue, because it was recognized that the doctrinal storm that was brewing there was not just something on Dutch soil, but was also being felt in England, Scotland, Switzerland, Germany. And so people were invited from all those different areas to come and talk about this. And what was the issue, the bottom issue? Well. It had to do with the question as to whether there was any human contribution in the process of salvation. Now, they didn't go so far who were agitating in that direction by saying you had to keep all the Old Testament laws and you had to keep all the ceremonies of the law, but it was more subtle. They took faith and they turned faith into a necessary good work of man that was within the power of man to indeed accomplish. So man was said to have the ability to either accept or reject God's offer of salvation. So even though, yes, Jesus Christ was important and God was involved by offering Jesus Christ, ultimately the origin and even the foundation of salvation, you could say, was found with man in his decision to accept Jesus or not. God only kind of provided the way, but man was critical in saying yes or no. But as you read through the Synod of Dort, the decisions there, it concluded that salvation from A to Z was the sovereign, gracious work of God. It was rooted in His eternal will. And salvation includes the gift of the Savior and also the gift of faith to embrace the Savior. Now, worth quoting is the article that defines election, which really ties in very nicely also with Paul's opening words of this letter. Maybe it's good, always better if you read it together for a moment. Go to Canons of Dort, chapter 1, article 7. So, as you look at that particular article, it says election defined, it says, so this is page 566, 
It says, election is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby before the foundation of the world out of the whole human race, which had fallen by its own fault out of its original integrity into sin and perdition, he has, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his will, so there we have the origin, out of mere grace, no human works, chosen in Christ, there we have the foundation, to salvation, a definite number of specific persons, neither better nor more worthy than others, but involved together with them in a common misery. He has also from eternity appointed Christ to be the mediator and head of all the elect and the foundation of salvation, and thus he decreed to give to Christ those who were to be saved, and effectually to call and draw them into his communion through his word and spirit. He decreed to give them true faith in him, to justify them, to sanctify them, and after having powerfully kept them in the fellowship of his Son, finally to glorify them for the demonstration of his mercy and the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. And then we have a few scripture passages, Ephesians 1 as well as Romans 8, could, have all, could also have mentioned Galatians chapter 1, these opening verses where that reference is there to the will of God. That is the origin of salvation. That's when also God decided to make Christ the foundation of salvation and to save people to live to the glory of His name. And so we can see then how in just a couple of verses woven into His greeting to the Galatians, Paul captures the gist of what he writes about extensively in Ephesians 1, Romans 9 through 11. But also here already he lays the foundation for what he is going to write about in the letter to the churches in Galatia, who were in crisis. He had to make clear that salvation is founded 100% on the crucified Christ, and believers are justified through faith in Him. He is going to defend this vigorously, but at the same time, having come out of the gate so strongly he, he cannot just get into the matter at hand, but notice how he bursts out in praise. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the same as at the end of his lengthy discussion in Romans 9 through 11, where we have the words, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. For indeed, brothers and sisters, each time we hear about grace, each time we think about grace, really, the only proper response is to praise our God. To Him be the glory forever. Amen.